If you have your copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. This morning we're specifically going to be considering verse 8. Inside your bulletin, as you're turning to Philippians 4, you will find a yellow insert in addition to that golden announcements page insert. You don't need this insert for this morning, okay? But I wanted to draw your attention to it because the information provided on it, if you've been here over the past couple of weeks, it will look somewhat familiar to you. We did pass out the, the one side with the ovals on it. And then last week is provided information from my sermon last week about those prayer darts for worry, anxiety, and fear. Thought it might be helpful for you to have those in written form. So those are, are provided there for you. If you have questions about that, I'd be happy to talk to you after the service. But I just wanted to explain why those are there. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, as we pause once more and come to you, God, we ask that you would help us to give our attention to the truths of this passage, particularly the, the truths, the call of verse 8. Father, help us to hear these words, help us to grow in understanding and how we might live out these words in the world in which we live. Father, we pray that you would help us not only to understand how we ought to live these words out, Help us, Father, to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. So, Father, we pray that you would be pleased to use this time to strengthen us, use this time to call anyone who is with us or hearing this sermon who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Use your word, Father, to bring the gift of repentance and faith. So, Father, we commit this time to you and pray that you would be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I thought about verse 8 in particular, as we continue working our way through Philippians chapter 4, I'll be honest, there's another five or six sermons just in this verse. But I promise we'll attend to many of those at other times as we come to the topics again, as we work our way through other passages of Scripture, okay? We're, we're not going to camp down for weeks on end here. However, I do think there is a, 
a danger in what Paul writes in verse 8 to us. There's a temptation to quickly pass over it and all the words that he throws together there and think, okay, I got that and move on. But friends, I think if we will pause and consider the call that Paul is making, there is an important call to us in the 21st century related to what I've titled the stewardship of our attention. We often think about the stewardship of our time or the stewardship of our finances or other material blessings, but it is also important that we consider what we do with where we give our attention in this life. And so, where we are going has to do with striving to steward our attention in the 21st century well and to the glory of God. And to that end, there are five things that I want to draw your attention to. Now, I could have lumped three of these into one point and made it sound shorter, but let's just be honest, okay? There are five things that I want to point out this morning. The first is the command. We need to hear the command that Paul is giving. And then... The three that I could have put together, one is the literary context. In order to appreciate this command, we need to understand it in its literary context, where it falls in the book and how it fits in with what Paul has already written in this letter. But we also need to understand it in its cultural context. We also need to consider it in its, what I'm calling its theological context, We could simplify that and just say, in relation to God, okay? Understand this command in relation to God. And then lastly, the solution. What is the solution? After we've considered the command and its relationship to these contexts, what is the solution for us in stewarding our attention in the 21st century? So first, the command. What is the command in verse 8? Well, it comes at the end of the verse, doesn't it? If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That command, think about, it simply means to give careful thought to a matter. To think about, to ponder, to let one's mind dwell on. So Paul here is calling the Philippians to let their minds dwell as they live in the culture that they are in on particular things. But what are they to let their minds dwell on? What are they to ponder? What are they to consider? Well, it's everything in the first part of that verse, isn't it? It's these six adjectives and the two nouns that Paul just seems to pile on to say, these are the things that you are to think about. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. Now, one of the six sermons that we could devote our time to would be just to explore what all of these things mean. But I'll leave that to another time for your own study. But we can hear in those words things that are virtuous. 
We can hear moral categories, things that are right. In that word, pure, things where there is no sin or the absence of sin. But as we consider these eight words, I have a question for you. And this is critical. This is critical for where we're going. Do you trust me? Now, some of you I've only met once or twice. I haven't even, some of you I haven't even met before. And so you're, a little, you're, you're kind of off the hook. We're glad you're here, okay? We're, we're really glad you're here. But for those of you who know me, do you trust me? I hope you do, because I need you to trust me for where we're going. You'll understand what I mean in two ways. Trust me for where we're going and how we're going to get there, okay? First, as we, the, the first thing, as we think about these eight words, these words as Paul uses them, friends, they're not explicitly a Christian concern. These are not explicitly Christian concerns. Here's what one commentator observes. The list of virtues that Paul asks the Philippians to think about, it's not a distinctively Christian list and could have been embraced by by many correct-thinking people in ancient times. In fact, two of the words, that word translated lovely, and the word that is translated commendable, they're not found anyplace else in the New Testament. And only the word lovely, that's translated lovely here, is found one time in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and there it's used in Esther 5 to describe the appearance of Esther as she presented herself before the king, hoping for his acceptance. Many, a a number, I shouldn't overspeak, a number of the other words are relatively infrequently found in the New Testament. And so this is not explicitly a Christian concern as Paul states these words, nor is it, I would say, an exclusively Christian concern. Non-Christians... Non-Christians are concerned about ethics and morality. In fact, if you've taken a course in philosophy, you'll know that ethics is one of the three main branches of study in philosophy. And this is not exclusively within the realm of Christian consideration. Greek moral philosophers were incredibly concerned for understanding what the good life looked like and trying to articulate that so that one commentator writes this about verse 8. This sentence would fit more readily in Epictetus's discourses or Seneca's moral essays than it would into any of the Pauline letters except this one. Moreover, just as the ideas that Paul points to here are not explicitly or exclusively a Christian concern. 
Friends, these things that Paul writes about are not exhausted by Christian truth revealed in Scripture. We can see this in at least one way. Notice what Paul writes, how he describes these things that he wants the Philippians to ponder. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and as he gets to the end, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, consider these things. Now, here I need to make a clarification. As Paul appeals not just to truths of Scripture, things that we find in Scripture, we do need to understand that truly, in order to see, in order to see the whatever, the if anything's in their rightful place, a Christian perspective is required. In order to understand these things rightly, it is absolutely necessary to approach them from a Christian perspective. And that's what we have as Paul calls the Philippians and their attention to this vast array of virtues and realities. But we need to understand these in their context. First, in their literary context. In their literary context. So, just where this command, think about all of these things, and whatever fits into those categories, consider them. Where, where does this happen? Where does this occur in Paul's letter to this church? Well, if you turn back, back all the way to chapter 1, Perhaps it feels like eons ago that we were there in working our way through this letter. But the letter opens, doesn't it, with an opening that really extends from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through verse 26 of chapter 1. It's really an extended opening. We have the standard greetings, the authors, the recipients. We have in verses 3 through 11, Paul's thanksgiving, his expression for thanksgiving, his description for how he prays for the Philippians. And then in verses 12 through 26, we have a uniquely placed description of Paul's experience and his response to that experience as he is in prison and as he longs to be with Jesus, but also longs to continue to serve the gospel and to serve the churches, especially this church at Philippi. But then after he sets out his description to this church that he loves so dearly, he then, in chapter 1, verse 27, enters into an extended section of instruction. A section of instruction and guidance that really goes all the way to the end of the passage that we read earlier, and that is chapter 4, verse 9. So that as we come to verses 8 and 9 at the end of chapter 4, we really are coming to the tail end of this section of instruction. 
So what Paul says about, think about all of these wonderful things must be understood in light of all of the instruction that he has given to them up to this point. So what has he instructed them in? I have here in my notes all of the commands that Paul has given to the Philippians. We'll not walk through all of those, okay? But I do encourage you over this next week, walk through chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through chapter 4, verse 9, and look at all of the things that Paul has commanded this church to do. And one of the things among many that will jump out over and over is how they are to live in light of who the Lord is and what He has done. We see this in part at the very first command in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, he gives them that beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humble obedience to the Father and his future exaltation, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Paul calls the Philippians to have this mind of submissive humility that the Lord Jesus demonstrated in his life. And that is one way that they live a life worthy of the gospel. Paul talks about his own experience in chapter 3, about laying down everything that he once counted as gain for the surpassing greatness, like we sang just a moment ago, of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ having by faith in Christ a righteousness that comes not from doing the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. So that Paul's instruction to this congregation is filled with a call to joy in the Lord and what the Lord has done and a call to remember and live out gospel faithfulness. And I would submit that in verse 8, as he appeals to these virtues, and as he calls them to ponder, to think about these virtuous things, that that is one way that he sees that they are to live out their gospel joy. One way that they are to live a life worthy of the gospel is to consider these virtues. So, the context is in the midst of this series of commands. The gospel is central to the instruction that Paul has given so that how we understand and apply this command to think about these things, must take into account this larger context. This command to set their minds, to ponder these great realities, 
It's not all that these Christians need to respond to, nor is it the only way that they should think about how they are to live in this world. But it is a key component, a key component of their faithful living. Paul has told them in Philippians 2.15, his desire is that they would be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And if they are to shine as lights in a fallen world, in part they are to think about these things. But the cultural context is also important as he writes to them. The cultural context. How many of you have heard the term cancel culture? Okay, you don't have to raise your hands because it's, it's all around us, right? This, this idea of cancel culture. One example from, well, it, it feels like ancient past now, but it's really not all that long ago. Back in 2014, the co-founder of Mozilla, a tech company group, many of you, some of you will remember this story, Brendan Eich, he had been named CEO of Mozilla. But in just a matter of days, he had to step down because six years prior to being named the CEO, he had given a $1,000 contribution to support a 2008 gay marriage ban in California, a ban that was overturned. But because of this contribution, there was outrage, and Ike was pressured to step down. But though the term cancel culture may be a relatively modern term, friends, the idea of a cancel culture is nothing modern at all. It, it's always been around. We see it in a variety of ways in the New Testament. For example, the early church in Acts. The early church experienced something of a cancel culture as they sought to extend the gospel. Think about the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. What did they seek to do to the apostles and the early church? They wanted to shut down the proclamation of truth by throwing them into prison, by commanding them not to speak. Paul and Barnabas, if you just read their first journey, they're in Iconium, Acts 14, 5, and 6, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. And then in Lystra, Paul actually is stoned because of his preaching. Paul and Silas in Philippi, long before this letter was written, they experienced the threat of a cancel culture as they were thrown in prison after a demon was exercised from a slave girl. And over and over and over, there was this attempt to repress or suppress the preaching of the New Testament church. But we also saw it back in the fall when we were working our way through the seven letters to the church, the churches in Revelation, particularly the church of Thyatira. Revelation 2.18, 
reads, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, you hear that, or maybe later you go back and you read it and you say, wait, I I don't hear anything about a cancel culture there, but what Jesus is doing as he speaks to the church at Thyatira is he is writing about or writing in reference to their experience and the experience of some, particularly in the metalworking guilds, as he writes about the flame of fire and the feet that are like burnished bronze and a part of the economic culture there in Thyatira and elsewhere was the necessity of participating in Roman worship if you were going to be a part of the professional or the labor groups, the societies. And so the Christians were looked down upon and not welcomed because they would not bow the knee. And so we would say, There was some effort to cancel them, to prevent them from participating in these economic enterprises. As as Paul writes to the church at Philippi, I think it's true that he writes to a church that was experiencing some efforts to cancel them in similar ways because of their unwillingness to participate in Roman worship. The end of chapter 1, Paul writes about the opposition that they are facing. Yes, there are threats from within, but there are also threats from without that they are facing. So that Paul writes to these believers in an effort to help them live faithfully and live expressing and experiencing gospel joy in the midst of a culture that would seek to suppress their voice, suppress their joy. Does it sound familiar? Now, here's an attempted explanation at what is a cancel culture. Well, a cancel culture is, and this is my my attempt, I'm sure you can find a better definition elsewhere, but there's a perception that there's something wrong in the world. We all know that there's something wrong in the world. And there is a desire to set that wrong right. Whatever the perceived wrong is, there is a desire to make it right. And so, there is a striving to correct what is wrong and make things right. How certain individuals are treated, certain thoughts that are promulgated. A cancel culture results when a group attempts to write perceived wrongs through forced silence or deprived attention. A cancel culture results when a group attempts to right perceived wrongs through forced silence or deprived attention. And in some ways, Paul's whole letter is an effort, in part, 
we can't understand his letter just in this way, but his whole letter is in part an effort to help the Philippians respond in a God-honoring way to the cancel culture around them. And this is timely for us. It is timely for us in at least two ways. One, because I think we can, at some level, identify with the Philippians. It doesn't surprise you, and it takes no explanation to say that we live in a world, in a society that is increasingly opposed to biblical virtues, to biblical ideas. But this is also timely for us because I believe that what Paul does here is he charts a positive path for these believers in responding to what they face. He charts for them a positive way forward. Because you see, every society, and I would say every group of people, cultivates for itself an appropriate cancel culture. Because there are values that the group values, wants to advance, and they want to resist and expose the things that are contrary to those values. And so they want to appropriately put them aside. And so here I do believe that in part what Paul does is he helps us to understand how we should respond not just to our experience of quote-unquote cancel culture, but how we should respond to what we perceive and what we rightly perceive as wrongs in the world around us. And so, in order to understand this command, not only do we need to understand it in its literary context and in its cultural context, but also in its theological context or in relation to God. And here's what I mean. I was thinking this morning, you know, there's another hymn that we could have included in our hymn set this morning that would be perfectly appropriate at this point. And it is that hymn, This Is My Father's World. This is our Heavenly Father's world. If your trust is in Christ, then God is your Father in truth. And friends, this world is His world. One of the consequences of the fact that this is His world is what we read together from Psalm 19 earlier, and that is that all over this world are the marks of our good, wise, and loving God's fingerprints. So that wherever there is truth in this world, wherever there are things that are commendable in this world, wherever there is true justice in this world, righteousness in this world, why is it there? It is not there because we are amazing and have stumbled upon the truth. It is there because of the God who has made this world, who is himself truth, 
the one who has made this world who is himself praiseworthy. The one who made this world who is himself lovely and so forth. All over this world, there are the marks of a good and loving God. And where we see those, even dimly shine forth, we should rejoice. We should rejoice that God's goodness is still showing up in the natural revelation. That's the fancy term we use. In this world that He has created. But we see it not just generally in this world as it bears His fingerprints, but in a particular place where God's fingerprints show up. And that is in every one of you sitting in this room and every one of the 8 billion people living on planet earth at this moment. Because every single one of you and every single one of those individuals bears the mark of his or her creator by virtue of being created in his image. And friends, we know that there is something wrong with this world. And the Bible tells us what that wrong is. That it is sin. That it is rebellion against God. That affects every single one of us. That affects every single relationship that we have in this life. That it affects every aspect of our living and breathing in this life. But friends, we are the ones because of what we are told in Scripture, we are the ones who can explain how it is that sinful people can do good things in this life. Because of the image of God on them. So that we can say without reservation that it is possible for sinful people to do good, lovely, commendable things in this life. That is not a means for eternal salvation. There is no amount of good, commendable things that we can do that would commend us to God. It is only by the saving grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are made right with Him. That is why, in part, we must understand what Paul says here as they are to set their minds on these praiseworthy things that they see around them in the world. We must understand these in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can say that something is good and acknowledge that something is good, but at the same time say, friend, that is not enough. No amount of goodness can save you. So that we come to the solution. The solution. What is the solution or part of the solution to living in a God-honoring way and looking for, celebrating displays of goodness, things that are praiseworthy even in fallen individuals, yes, even in those who have different political persuasions than you? 
What is the solution? Well, the temptation for us, the temptation for us as believers is that our posture towards the world around us and its opposition to God would be characterized perhaps by pessimistic antagonism. That we would just be pessimistically antagonistic to anything and anyone that does not wear the label Christian, regardless of what they say or do. Another temptation is that we would have wishful pining, wishing that they would accept us, wishing that they would welcome us into their circle. Or naive optimism. Some form of naive optimism. But I would say, in light of what Paul calls the Philippians to set their minds on, to think about, to observe in Philippians 4.8, the solution is a biblical view of the world, a biblical view of the world as God's world groaning under the curse resulting from sin. This is God's world, and it is God's world that is groaning under the curse that results from sin. What are the consequences of this briefly? Well, first, the fact that this is God's world means that there are things in it that are commendable, that are lovely, that are worthy of our attention, so that we are freed to study this great world that God has made. You have heard me say this before. From time to time, I remind my kids, though it's been a while, so maybe I'll have to do this tomorrow. God's glory is revealed in mathematics. It's true. It's true. Because that's a part of, that's a way of describing this world that he has made. And his glory is revealed in it. God's glory is revealed in scientific exploration of this world. So that, friend, in particular, I'm speaking to those of you who are younger, teenagers, perhaps slightly older, thinking about what am I going to devote the rest of my life to? Friend, God can be glorified as you seek to use the gifts that He has given you to explore this world that He has made and help us see His glory shine through in it. So do not think. We need pastors and missionaries and seminary professors and so on and so forth to help advance the kingdom of Christ. But, friend, as you consider your vocation, you don't have to become a pastor, a missionary, a theologian to glorify God with your life. If that is what He has for you, then that's how you ought to glorify God with your life. 
But if you love science, if you love math, if you love history, if you love engineering, if you love fill in the blank, and it is something that is not contrary to what God has revealed in Scripture, friend, go and explore that and use your gifts to God's glory. That is commendable. That is praiseworthy. As for the rich, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He doesn't just provide us with Scripture to enjoy. He does do that. But He provides to us manifold blessings in this world that He has created to enjoy for His glory, so that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is His world. Look for His glory shining through in it. But also, also, a biblical view understands that yes, this is God's world. And it is a world that is groaning under the curse resulting from sin. And so there is hope that is needed. There is hope that we must proclaim so that, friends, our primary posture towards this world in which we live, towards this world that is opposed to biblical truth, friends, let's not let our posture be one of pessimistic pessimistic antagonism we have to call out unrighteousness and we have to stand for what is righteous and what is true but we can do that in a way that points to the hope of the living god this world will not be made right and i could spend a lot of time on this one point This world will not be made right by an external adoption of biblical morality. We should proclaim what is virtuous, what is righteous, and we should expose where there is unrighteousness in our world. But the solution to that is not Just do the right thing. The solution to that is see your need for a Savior and repent and turn to Christ. Friends, we are not being sellouts when we look at our world and find ideas, themes, etc. that reflect the character of God and other biblical truths around us. But moreover, we are not being self-righteous perfectionists when we point out problems or shortcomings in the world around us. We are called to a life of both and. To celebrate God's glory displayed in fallen humanity and in a creation under His curse. And also to call out the need for the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are confronted with 
supposed explanations of this is what the world needs. And we would all be better if we adopted this platform, this perspective, this approach. And this platform, this perspective, this approach is contrary to biblical truth. Friend, what is the right response, I believe? It's to say, as I had a professor once say, we have a better story to tell. We have a better story to tell of what's wrong with this world. We have a better story to tell of what will make this world right. We have a better story to tell for what will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart that you don't even know you have. We have a better story to tell that will provide a rescue from sin that you may not even at this moment know that you have. Friends, we have a better story to tell. And so, let's tell that story. Let's tell it with joy. Let's tell it in ways that point to how the saving, redeeming, loving Creator God's glory is showing up in the world around us. And let's tell it in ways that help the world see the brokenness that God has sent His Son to rescue us from. We have a better story to tell. Let's tell it. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to You. Father, thank You that this is Your world and that in the midst of all the chaos that seems like is raging around us, in the midst of what feels like moral upheaval in society around us, thank You, Father, that we can have confidence that this is Your world. And Father, You have placed us in this time and in this place for such a time as this. And so, Father, help us to be those Help us to be those who stand for truth, who stand for righteousness, who point out where there is unrighteousness in our world. But help us, Father, also to not be marked by antagonism, to not be marked by naive optimism. But help us, Father, to be those who are marked by biblical realism that this is Your world and that You have sent Your one and only Son to redeem us from our sin and that there is coming a day when You will make all things right. There is coming a day where for those who are in Christ, there will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. No more tears. Father, as we groan, as we wait, help us to do so. Looking, thinking about, exploring Your glory as it is revealed in so many ways in this world. And help us also, Father, to do so, proclaiming this special revelation of Your great love and mercy in the death, burial, and resurrection of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.